You're listening to Forecast, the marketing podcast for professional services leaders. If you're looking to generate more leads, win more deals, and take your firm to the next level, this show is your shortcut. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the show. I am your host, Ahmed Munawar, and I am so thrilled and so honored to bring you this conversation with David C. Baker. David C. Baker is the author of a fantastic book. Actually, he's the author of many fantastic books, but the one we're going to talk about specifically in this episode is his latest book called The Business of Expertise. This is an absolute must-read for anybody who sells advice or insights based on their expertise. I can't say this about very many books, but I got to tell you, this book has legitimately changed the way that I think about my business and the businesses of my clients. There's a ton of value in this book, and there's a ton of value in this conversation coming up with David C. Baker. But before we get to that, if you haven't yet joined us inside our free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional service firms, you're going to want to check that out. Inside the course, I will show you a step-by-step process that you can use to generate a flood of new leads for your business. The course is 100% free of charge, and you can get immediate access at 5leadgen.com. You can spell out five or use the number. Either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. With that, here is David C. Baker. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is great to be here. I've um, known of you for a while, and this is one, oh, by saying this, I shouldn't really say this, but this is one interview I'm excited about. There are some I've been on I'm not all that excited because I know somebody (laughs) hasn't really interacted with the material, but I'm very, very glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Well, the feeling is mutual. I am so excited to have you on the show. It's a real honor, and I'm just super charged up to dive into the book and to have you talk about some of the insights you shared there. But before we get into that, I would love to hear a little bit more about your backstory as a professional. Sure. So I'm podcast. I got special permission today to podcast. They let me out of my cell and I'm in the visitor (laughs) area. That's a joke. So I was born in the U.S., but when I was really young, we my parents were medical missionaries. Dad did dental work. Mom did nurse work. And they also did a lot of literacy stuff. So we moved to Costa Rica when I was four, lived there for a year. That's where I learned Spanish. I was just dropped in, parachuted into a Spanish kindergarten. And then after a year, when I was five, we went to live with a tribe of Mayan Indians in Guatemala in this very, very remote village, no running water, no electricity, no roads, no stores to speak of, and lived there for 13 years. So I didn't really come to the U.S. until I was, except to visit, until I was 18, and didn't really go to formal school Uh, except for a couple of years scattered around until I was uh, midway through high school. So it's been a very different sort of a background. I'm U.S. citizen, live here, but I work all over the world in 30 plus countries and visited 40 plus countries. So it's been a really weird life. I almost feel a little bit like an alien. Sometimes when I describe my background, people kind of wonder what that sounds a little bit unreal. And to me, it also sounds a little bit unreal as well. Yeah, and I guess you really only know your own your own experience, but I'm just curious to hear, you know, given what you know of other people who have gone through, well, the vast majority of us have gone through a very traditional upbringing, not much travel, formal schooling. How do you feel those experiences have shaped who you've become? 
Well, I actually did do a lot of formal schooling later. I went through all kinds of graduate school work, but not so much in the early days. And I don't see a lot of connection between success and formal schooling, nor do I see much connection between all of the traditional ways we tend to bring up our kids, right? We, we have two kids. I'm married. We have two kids. They have, they're married. They have kids. I just think we come to life with so many weird expectations and assumptions about the way things should be. I often think like we could skip most of school as long as our kids are socialized in some way. And as long as we read to them and they write between those two things, I think they'll figure out most of it. I'm not sure the rest of what we learn in school is all that valuable. The process of going to school is valuable in the sense that you connect with a lot of people that mean something to you later in life. And it builds discipline. It demonstrates to people that you are serious about your craft, but that what you learn is not all that fantastic. And I think maybe it's becoming less and less fantastic over time. I would, if I were designing the world's curriculum, it would really be more in fine arts or history or philosophy or something like that. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. My kids are, are homeschooled thus far, so I'm, I'm of the same school of thought. Yeah. So David grows up, goes to grad school. What was grad school about? So at the time, I was wanting to teach ancient languages. So that's what I was studying. I was studying anthropology, some theology, and then ancient languages. So Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, Syriac and so on. And then, of course, Latin, some of the other ancient languages. And I wanted to teach those. I was good with language, loved it, but discovered about halfway through a second graduate degree that there was so much politics in higher ed. I I went into the whole thing naively. I, I thought, well, here, their academic freedom means no politics, which was a really naive idea. But halfway through, I realized that, no, there's a lot of politics here and academic freedom is sort of a misnomer. So I decided that I would, I'd go ahead and finish what I was involved in, finish the degree, but then I would launch something else. And at the time, I was actually working at an academic publisher, book publisher, head of marketing, and then running the place. And I decided at that point I would start an agency, and that's what kind of got me into the consulting career because now I work with marketing firms, but at the time I decided to start my own marketing firm. Very naively, honestly, I thought, how hard could this be? Turns out it was a little bit bit harder than I thought it would be. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like a pretty typical education for a marketing professional. (laughs) Yeah, right. Of ancient languages. Yeah, Yeah, but I mean, how many people are doing what they were trained for in school? It seems like it's a little bit more and more rare for somebody to go. And marketing is so much about thinking and experience. And there are some really good basic things to learn in marketing. The barrier to entry is pretty low, which is exactly why marketing firms struggle, right? Because there's no protection in that professional service area. It's the least protected. Somebody can be somebody else one day and tomorrow they're a marketing expert. At least that's what they say on the website. They can hang up a shingle without any sort of certification process, right? So it's an unprotected marketplace, which means it's easy to get into, which means it's easy for everybody else to get into as well. Do you know what's funny? So I went to business school in undergrad and when I was picking a major in second year, 
I was like, you know, marketing, HR, I mean, anybody can claim to do those things. They're not technical professions. I can kind of figure that out later if I really want to. Yeah. I was like, I, I want something with letters. I want like a, a credential that I can, you know, I can put after my name and, you know, it'll be defendable against other people. Right. 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 So I, I went into accounting, did an accounting major, got my CPA, and then years and years later decided to become a marketer. So lo and behold, I'm, I'm one of those guys that... <laughs> <laughs> All those times. Yeah. But CPA is a great example, right? You have to pass a state bar or not a bar, but, you know, a state licensing exam. And, and it's serious that there aren't many total hacks in accounting. There are a lot of total hacks in marketing. Though. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. And I try my best every single day not to be one of them, but that's part right. of the fun. <laughs> yeah, right. So tell me about that experience starting an agency. What was that like? So we were living in northern Indiana at the time in Winona Lake, Indiana, and I was just looking, you know, this is many, many years before Google or even the Internet. And I was just looking at the local newspaper and I thought, well, these ads suck. It's like, how hard could it be to do a better job? I was learning on the job, essentially. And I didn't, you know, back then your local competitors were all your competitors. The world hadn't opened up that way. It hadn't been Googleized. And so I didn't have anybody that I could talk with about just how to run a firm. I was, I was terrified of sharing any secrets. They certainly weren't going to share any with me. And so I was, you know, I would say that my financial performance as a firm, we had 16 people eventually, was good. It was better than average. Our positioning was worse than average. My management ability of people was average or maybe a little bit less than average. And I learned a lot. So that was fantastic. In the process of that, when I was just looking to learn more, I remember the first event I went to was sponsored by somebody who was an advisor to the field, Tony Micas. He's no longer here, but he had this roundtable in Chicago, and I thought, oh, I'll go there. I'll learn all this great stuff that I'm struggling to learn, and what I discovered, I didn't learn anything that I thought I would. I was still really glad I went, and it was still a good investment, but what I learned mainly was that all these peers of mine new peers, new friends were struggling with the same things that I was. So God wasn't sort of uniquely singling me out like Job and saying, I'm going to strike you with this malady. No, it's like everybody was struggling with the same thing. And that was really, really eye-opening for me. But the next step was really to subscribe to a publication out of Boston called Creative Business. And this, so you got this monthly thing and it was very useful, but then you also got to call the editor. That was his way of sort of staying in touch with the marketplace. I suggested to him one day that maybe he'd like to do some individual consulting with agencies. He wasn't interested for his own reasons, but he said without even hesitating, why don't you do it? And I didn't really know what to say because that thought had never occurred to me. And then before I could even respond, he said, why don't we put an ad in my publication and see what happens? And then you just give me 10 percent of everything you make. And I, I didn't think anything would come of it. But very quickly, people started calling and they were calling for the same reasons that I went to that roundtable because they wanted somebody from the outside to keep them from having to reinvent the flat tire, so to speak. Like, how can we have some shortcuts here? I don't mean hacking. That's kind of a more modern word that isn't all that serious or friendly, honestly. But just like, how do we avoid some of the common mistakes? So that took over my life very, very quickly. That was in 94. And so since then, the last 20 whatever years, I've been advising 
agencies and worked with about 900 marketing firms over this time, written a bunch of books, of course, uh, which is something I think we'll talk about at some point. But that's really how it got started. I just started an agency, stumbled around and then stumbled into an opportunity to guide others, which is really what happens, right? How many of us really connect the dots moving forward? We don't. We look we look back at things and we see how those dots were connected almost unwittingly. We were disciplined. We were courageous. We were in the right place at the right time. There was some intelligence, but a whole lot of luck that sort of explained where we are now. So I know we're going to get a lot into positioning as the conversation goes forward, but I'm curious to hear in, in those early days when you stumbled into consulting for agencies, how were you positioned then? Oh, very poor. Oh, how was I positioned in my current consulting practice? Oh, I was positioned very well. In fact, I printed some booklets back when you printed things, right? I printed some 30,000 of these booklets and I was using them for direct mail pieces and then I was giving them out at seminars. I'm still using those things 24 years later. I have not adjusted the positioning at all. There's been one little temptation I faced along the way and that was to quit working with PR firms, but I haven't made that decision so the positioning has been perfect. But the positioning of the agency I ran for six years before that was really lame. So like a huge contrast. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm curious to just kind of hear more about why you think you nailed it the first time, because the way you explain it, it's like you stumbled into it. You took out an ad. You didn't think much would come of it. Like, how did you nail the positioning the first time around? Well, I think actually it was pretty accidental. I nailed it because I decided that the only thing I was remotely qualified to talk about was my experience in running an agency. So there weren't many options. So I just stumbled into it. I didn't understand positioning. And that's been really a big part of my life's work is really understanding the science behind positioning. I didn't understand that science until years later when I was forced with the opportunity or the challenge of guiding other agencies that I was working with through their own positioning decisions. So I landed on the right positioning almost accidentally. And then as I developed the science and then back tested my own positioning, it turned out to be the perfect one. But I can't claim that I had all that science at the beginning. I definitely did not. So fast forward 20 some odd years and five books and the business of expertise came out, uh, I believe it was last year, 2017. Last was year. It? Yeah. Yeah. June, July last year. Right. Why did you feel the need to write this book? You know, the other books and really of, of the five I've written, only three of them are any good. Honestly, the third one I needed to write because I had all this material on how to run a firm from a financial standpoint, and I just wanted to use it and make some money on it, developed it into a $200 book. That was fantastic. Second one, I really wanted to be well, a little bit more well-known, and that was a book on managing for the first time. This is the first book I've written, though, where I felt like really, really passionate about it. It didn't start that way. When I started to sit down and write, I had a massive outline. This is going to be a tome, a whole business approach to expertise from beginning to end. And I was boring myself writing it. I just thought, oh, my goodness, if I can't get through writing this, how in the world is anybody going to get through reading it? And it was going to be a 120,000-word textbook, like that it would be used in sort of an academic setting. And I realized I just, I'm not into this. And so it pivoted. I just let myself 
just sort of run free with it. And I chopped off two thirds of the outline, reoriented a bunch of it, and then started writing from my heart. So even though it's about expertise, which I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily associate with passion, a passion topic, for me it is. It's like, I don't remember exactly how I phrase it in there, but I'd rather know what I'm talking about and live on the street than make shit up and make a lot of money. I've just gotten to the point where there's no choice for me. And I, I think a lot of experts have experienced both sides of that. They've experienced n- knowing what it feels like to nail something and then knowing what it feels like to just be making shit up, hoping you don't get caught. And I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. I wanted to know as in K-N-O-W. I just, I wanted to get to that point and I wanted to share that passion I had about it with other people. But then beyond that, I wanted to help them build a business around their expertise. Like how do you narrow down your thinking and then build that into something that makes a lot of money and also really changes people's business lives. So that's what, how it came about. And it was really the, even though it's a fifth book, it's really the most passionate book for me. So let me ask you this as an expert, do you feel like there's always kind of a balance between, you know, over the course of your career, knowing you nailed something like you described it and making shit up and hoping nobody notices, like, do you have to kind of balance between the two? Right. Yeah. I don't think you ever, because if you never make shit up, you're never learning, right? So there is always a little bit of that, but those leaps should not be leaps as much as sort of little steps. So like you're stepping from the point, you're stepping off a platform that is fully validated and you're saying, okay, I think I've noticed this pattern. Let me share this pattern with you, Mr. Client and tell you, I'm not positive about this, but I'm pretty sure this is right. And I'm going to work on validating this for you. So being a little bit more upfront about what you don't know and distinguishing clearly between what you know, what you don't know, being authentic about that, transparent about it and continue learning. So it's there is still always the imposter syndrome. But I mean, you you know this, like you're sitting listening to podcast interviews, whatever podcasts you consume, like as you know, as a listener and you're thinking, Oh my God, this is, there's nothing interesting. There's nothing innovative in here. There's, there's no insight. This is just content. Or you hear somebody, it's like your ears perk up, you forget what you were doing. And now all of a sudden the podcast you're listening to isn't just in the background anymore. You stop doing what you were doing and you start listening to it more carefully. That's the kind of expert that I try to help people become the kind of expert that people really want to listen to. I mean, it's funny. This is how I feel about your book and not to get over flattering on you here, but I've read a lot of marketing books and I can probably count on one hand the number of books that have genuinely changed the way that I think professionally. Mm. Right. Yours is one of them. I would count David Maester's books among others, maybe mm. Trusted Advisor. I mean, there's yep. less than five. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, I've, I've been thinking about additional podcast episodes to record based on this. I've got a daily podcast. And one of the things I want to communicate to people is surround yourself with advisors and experts and coaches and consultants who genuinely change the way that you think. Like, don't just fill the knowledge, you know, the, the content void in your life with information. Fill it right. with people who actually shift your perspective and help you see the world in a different way. 
Yeah, exactly. It's interesting you mentioned David Meister. He um, had a big influence on me because I thought, especially his work at HBR and so on, I just felt like he approached his work so seriously. He wrote me an email. He's retired now. We still communicate some. But he sent me an email several years ago, and he said, David, and this is a different kind of email. It wasn't more of a friendly one. It, it had a request in it. And he said, David, I'd be interested in using some of your work in my next book. And it was uh, strategy in the fat smoker. And I was just blown away. It's like, that was one of the highlights of my life when David Maester wanted to use some of my stuff because I'd always read his stuff. It's like, Oh, this, I want to be David Maester, you know, and nowadays, you know, he's not writing anymore. Obviously he's not consulting. He hasn't for a decade. And nowadays I, I read some people that, fit that description you just gave. It's like they change how I think. I think a Dan Pink does that or an Anne Lamont or I think Ryan Holiday would be another one for me. People who are just constantly challenging me and they've put the hard work in to write a book. That's, But there's so much nonsense out there and it's really hard to sort it out. You can't go to Amazon and see a book that has 400 reviews and assume it's a good one. You almost have to trust I think we're in a day and age where there's so much noise out there that you have to decide who is consistently correct, not always correct, but consistently correct, and then kind of just follow them because otherwise you'll drive yourself crazy. There's about 20 people, you know, that I follow that way because I consistently learn from them. And I suppose as an expert, then logically that would require that you're consistently publishing and putting your ideas out there. Right, exactly. Just if for no, even if nobody reads it, right, you'll never figure out what you think unless you write. Writing is much more important than speaking. Speaking's good too, but writing is the only way you're really going to figure out what you believe. But it's also the best tool for prospects to decide whether or not they want to work with you because they're starting to sample your thinking and you're giving away all this stuff for free and then you begin charging ridiculous amounts of money to apply it to their specific situation. That's in a nutshell. That's what content or insight marketing is for an expert. Yeah. I mean, let's go down a bit of a rabbit hole here. We'll come back to the book in a minute, but I'm curious to hear over the course of the last 20 some odd years, how has your content publishing writing routine and rhythm evolved? So I started this consulting practice in 94 in 97, so three years in, I had been putting a full-page ad in Communication Arts. That was my way of buying credibility, so to speak. Doing a little bit of direct mail and then that full-page ad. And even if somebody hadn't seen the ad, I would always mention it in the first call, like, oh, how'd you hear about me? You probably saw my ad, you know, even if they hadn't. I just wanted them to know I was real enough to spend $5,000 a month. Well, didn't take too long to realize like, goodness, this is really expensive. And I don't even know it's, if it's worth it. What if I just start writing stuff and put it on my website, had a website in 96, had a T1 line to my living room for $1,100 a month and set up three servers, a web server, an email server, and a DNS server. And I started to collect people's email addresses and then send them these content emails. That was in 98. And that was the beginning of content marketing for me. I didn't know that's what it was called. This was before Google was even there. So there wasn't anything about SEO, obviously, certainly no, no SEM. And I stumbled on that and it was a good decision. I didn't know how revolutionary that was until later. And so that's been my primary driver uh, moving forward. It's like I try to send out a 
thought leadership piece every week if I can. Sometimes I don't. It's usually about 40 a, a year or something like that, 800 to 1,600 words. I send it out in an email, links it back to the website, which helps with organic search and so on. But then also you have to supplement it with speaking books if you can, if you enjoy that process. I'm doing my own podcast now. I've been doing it for about a year with Blair Inns called Two Bobs. That's been much more effective than I expected it would be. I suspect your podcast has been a huge part of your success as well. I didn't expect it to be that useful for us. So really, that's what it comes down to. And because I love writing, marketing is not a chore to me that like the notion of cold calling, like I'd rather slip my wrists and make a cold call. Plus, experts don't do that. So it's really handy that I love doing what's actually good for my business. And I've found over the years you need to focus, do fewer and fewer things and do them better. So for me, it's books, blog, podcast, and that's it. Every once in a while speaking, but only speaking, you know, if there's money involved and so on. So that's really the rhythm for me. I, you know, behind it, there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes. So I have an Evernote file that I throw ideas in. So right now there are about 260 ideas. I looked at it this morning, but I pull some of those out. I work with an illustrator, freelance illustrator in New York City. And I say, Hey, Patrick, can you do these 10 illustrations for me? And so on. So I've got about 30 so topics that are, I've already got the outline. I've got the illustration and I can sit down and write them. So if I'm on a plane coming back from a client engagement or a speaking engagement or something, then and I get itchy if I don't write. It's almost like an addiction. So I'll sit there and say, okay, which of these 30 topics am I really motivated to write right now? I'll bang it out. It takes me about an hour and a half, two hours total, write it, and then send it. So it's a pretty seamless process. Fortunately, my what I love doing matches what the marketplace wants from me. I guess that might change at some point. But for now, I, I love it. It's, it works great. So let me ask you this. Some of the common advice you'll hear about content marketing and publishing is to analyze the competitive landscape and get a sense of what your competitors are saying and develop some kind of a distinctive or disruptive point of view and then mm -hmm. write about that. Now, when I read your work, and I'm going to make some assumptions, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but okay. it, it doesn't strike me as coming from a place of creating a distinctive point of view among your competition. It strikes me as coming from a place of here's the work I'm doing with my clients, here are the patterns that I'm seeing, and here's why this is relevant to you. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that, that's an honest observation. I don't care what my competitors are doing. In some ways I do. I'm very friendly with my competitors. I invite them to come speak. I, any of them can come to any of my events for free. I started a whole conference called Mind Your Own Business. I invited all of them to speak. I list all of them on my website. I'm not afraid of what my competitors are doing. But I, if I followed what my competitors were doing, it would be distracting to me because then it would plant seeds in my mind and I'd be writing about their ideas, which is, you know, writing about their ideas is not fair to them, really. So, no, I, I don't do that. I, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that question, but I thought you were going to say, what about keywords and all that stuff? And the truth is I've never once used a keyword tool. I just figure Google knows what they're doing. I'm just going to write stuff and Google's going to figure it out. I also, here's a big difference. And I think a lot of your listeners would benefit by making this, this distinction that they need to have a clear point of view so that after somebody hears or reads their point of view, 
they are either drawn toward that person even more, like toward the expert, or pushed away from the expert. There's too much blah, blah marketing speak that doesn't really change people's lives. I want your prospects to feel like you've got a camera in their office and you are seeing exactly what's happening in their life and you have a point of view about what they should do differently. If you don't have those two things happening, like seeing what's happening in their lives and having a point of view about what they should do differently, then you're not an expert. So it, it does require some, some, I guess, chance taking if that's a risk taking. Well, that's a perfect place for uh, for my next question, which is one of the ideas I really, really took away from your book was the idea of drop and give me 20, one of right. the five early tests of positioning. Tell us about that. Because a lot of people come up with a positioning that's it's a real positioning, but it's just artificial. It's not a meaningful positioning. Uh, so like if you were going to say I'm a barber and I'm different because I use blue scissors, well, you are different if you use blue scissors, but nobody cares about that, right? What, why? So the drop and give me 20 for that person would be tell me why somebody wants you to use blue scissors or tell me what you know about cutting hair with blue scissors that makes it a better, better job for them, right? So the idea is that you know, so pretend that. So let, let's say that I'm the, the, the expert to be and I've come up with this positioning and I think it's meaningful and I want to test it. So let's pretend that I'm going to talk with somebody who is smart and they know a lot about marketing, but they don't know about the focus that I have chosen. Can I say 20 things that will give them aha moments? Will they learn 20 things from me that they wouldn't otherwise know, even though they are smart and even though they know a lot about marketing? That's how you would define a drop and give me 20 is just a quick test of whether somebody has a meaningful distinction around positioning. If they really know something deeper than just in our case, in our example, the notion of marketing, that's how it works. And, and if they can't, then what does that tell us about their positioning? Then it's either lame and we need to try to find another one or it's newer to them and they haven't thought deeply enough about it. Because I find that some people struggle with coming up with those 20. They may come up with three or they may come up with what they think are 20. And I look at them and I'm saying, nope, 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 nope. Yes, maybe. Nope, nope, nope. You know, I look at them and they're like, nah, these aren't very good. But it's not because they aren't smart. It's not because they don't know unique things. It's just that they haven't thought in those, you know, in those terms before. So in that case, I suggest that they're only going to be smart when they're in front of a client. They're not people are you're just stupid when you're working by yourself in the office, right? Unless you're writing something, you're just stupid. So you're smart when you're working with a client, you're on display, you're on the phone with a prospect, whatever. Start paying attention to the things that you're saying over and over again, which indicate to me that you have noticed the patterns and articulated them carefully enough. Write those things down and then test it again. So I wouldn't automatically discount somebody's positioning idea just because they can't come up with a, with a 20 right out of the gate. Many times they can. They just need to think about it a little more deeply. Yeah, I mean, this has become my, my go-to exercise when a client comes to me and says, I don't know what to write about or I don't know what to talk about or I don't know what to publish about. Right. I say, drop and give me 20. Here's the exercise. Yeah. Re read David's book. Here's the exercise. Yeah. Right. And once right. you have those 20, well, then guess what? That's 20 articles. That's exactly probably right. 100 videos. Right. That's a bunch of podcast episodes. That becomes your content calendar right there. 
Right. Yeah, exactly right. And my podcast partner, Blair Enns, he, he talks about how, you know, what you do at that point is you're entering into this room that you haven't been in before and you don't even know what's in the room, but you get in that room and you see all kinds of other rooms leading off of this room. And it just begins this lifetime exploration for you that takes you deeper, deeper into the labyrinth of caves and learning deeper and deeper insight. And it's just, it never gets old. It's like, it's amazing. You, all of a sudden you get so smart and you can start to put the pieces together and see how the different segments of the context work in, like you pull this lever and this happens and you pull these three levers and this happens. It just, it's a wonderful world of exploration really. So, you know, I want to talk about positioning, but I'm not going to ask you to go over the fundamentals. People can get that in the book. But one idea I want you to comment on a little bit here is is the idea of pattern matching. And pattern matching is honestly, until I had read your book, I had never heard anybody explain the benefits of positioning in such a way. Tell us what that is. Yeah, I think pattern matching for me actually started with photography. I was drawn to seeing the patterns um, in different images that I was shooting so the idea is that all intelligence comes from recognizing patterns. And the easy illustration of that is a child you who can't even speak yet, but who can recognize patterns. That tells us that, wow, there, so there's something happening in this child's mind. You hold up duck, duck, goose, and they'll point to the goose because it doesn't match the pattern. So reverse pattern matching. So if we can determine that intelligence is tied directly to pattern matching, and we can, there's a lot of science from it then how do we get to the point where we can recognize patterns? Well, to get there, you have to put yourself in situations where the situations are similar enough that the patterns are going to surface. So if you're working with agencies like I am, then you need to work with a lot of agencies in order to see those patterns. Okay. How do you put yourself in a place where you're going to see a lot of agencies. Well, that's where the positioning decision comes down. Positioning leads to multiple opportunities, working with many agencies, and then those multiple opportunities yields the opportunity to notice patterns. And then those patterns are what I translate then into intelligence. So patterns is really, it's, it's somebody was reading from the New York Times is reading the book and they said, you really should have renamed this like the monetization of pattern matching thought that was a really good idea. It didn't occur to me until the book was already out. But that is really what a lot of the book is about, is monetizing pattern matching. Now, you almost present this as a moral issue because the way you articulate it is, is almost like – I think you, you have a, a term or two in there, a sentence or two where you say, if you're learning on the client's dime, you're cheating the client. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is a moral issue. I mean if you're sitting around a campfire at night and you're just – you know, bullshitting with your friends and and just commenting on politics or social issues or whatever. You can make stuff up all you want. But if people are paying you and they're making decisions around their business, around their people, around long term positioning decisions, you better know what you're talking about. So, yeah, I do think it's an ethical slash moral decision to know what you're talking about. Another idea I want to dive into here, David, is this idea of distinguishing expertise from implementation. Why is that so important for an expert? It's particularly important for a beginning expert because many of them are not as confident as they will be later. And so they're going to tend to rely on implementation in the early days to justify their fees. So they'll focus on deliverables, on this flurry of activity, on all the things that they can spend hours and hours on to demonstrate 
that the client is getting their attention. And so in the early days, they will focus their positioning on implementation as if that um, is, is more valuable than sort of this, the thinking or the strategy. The thinking or the strategy is when they're standing in front of them, in front of the client without anything on, so to speak, sort of naked, like they're not hiding behind any implementation. I think implementation is a very useful thing to offer to a client, but it, what's dangerous about it is that it can drag your positioning down and it's also more easily replaceable. It means you're working with clients longer and longer. There's this really nasty trend in the consulting world to chase monthly recurring revenue, MRR, from a client. And it's dangerous because you're going to get dragged down into implementation. And the longer you work with a client, the less of an expert you are. If you want long-term relationships, relationships as an expert, you need to bounce in and out of that relationship. And monthly recurring revenue means you're never bouncing out of it. And you're never going to be viewed as the expert that you could be. So it's really important to distinguish between I guess, the expertise side and the implementation side. Well, I love the example you share in the book. It, it's like when you're boarding a plane and you see the pilot uh, loading the bags. <laughs> right, right, yeah. How do you now feel about that flight you're about to get on? Right, especially, yeah, especially if the pilot is in uniform because we put the pilot in uniform so that they can mix with the unwashed masses, that's us, the passengers, <laughs> and now they're doing something that the unwashed masses might do, and that's load the baggage, and it just, yeah, it drops the positioning of that pilot very quickly. Well, let me ask you this. Is implementation a rite of passage? It's often where we start, right? We, we always migrate upstream in a consulting practice. And so it's an appropriate thing to do at the beginning. And there are good reasons why clients want implementation. They want one throat to choke. They, they love how you, you've demonstrated so clearly that you get it and they don't want that lost in translation later. You know, there are good reasons to do implementation, but, but you do want to climb upstream towards more strategy and you want to have a more sustainable business. Implementation is more interchangeable. There's so many people doing implementation yet we're fearful as experts to not do everything the client needs. We're afraid that they'll fall in love with somebody else doing implementation and then they'll kind of that person will worm their way up instead of just being comfortable with the fact that, listen, you're an expert and they're going to come back to you when they really need advice. Let them go get implementation somewhere else while you, meanwhile, are doing great strategy giving to somebody else, moving in and out of all those relationships. So, David, let's let's jump into the lightning round. I've got a, a collection of sentences, statements. Uh, some of them are a little bit shorter, a little bit longer, but I want to read from the book. And uh, I don't want you to just kind of share, you know, off the cuff, whatever comes to mind to best explain that statement. Okay. First up, spread your expertise like an aerial spray, but then charge a lot of money when you land to apply it specifically to a client situation. Right, because a lot of experts are afraid to give away their thinking for free, which is ridiculous. They should give away their thinking for free and they should charge a lot of money when they apply it. And there should be no middle ground, no half price stuff. It should be either ridiculously expensive or totally free. And the difference is whether I'm going to apply it to your specific situation. Be an expert, but don't be an asshole. Yeah, so an expert needs to be inaccessible to some degree, but not a jerk. And we all know experts who are jerks and who are 
you know, and it's just not fun to work with him. The classic example of that is the TV show, Dr. House, where he was clearly an expert, but he was also such a jerk that nobody wanted to go see him unless they really were dying and they didn't care at that point. So be inaccessible, but don't be a jerk about it. Experts are confident even when they aren't. Yeah, so that's a little bit of the faking it like we were talking about. I just think there should be less and less faking it as you as you move along in your career. And I think it's okay to distinguish between the times when most of the time when you really know what you're talking about and can defend it and the other times when you you're not sure and you tell the client you're not sure. Experts are not widely relevant. Right. I have a, again, my podcast partner, Blair Enns, talks about how podcasting, excuse me, how positioning is an exercise in irrelevance, which is a really interesting way to turn that phrase around because you're essentially deciding, most of your work in positioning is deciding who you're not going to be relevant to. And when whoever's left in that circle that you're going to be relevant to, you tend to be deeply, increasingly relevant to that group and increasingly unrelevant to the folks that are not going to be in your circle. So that's what terrifies experts, but it's a part of it. It's a very painful process. Experts travel. Right. Now, this didn't used to be the case, but now with the way the world has been Googleized, that's the case. So somebody needs to travel. It doesn't have to be the expert. It could be you traveling to see somebody, or it could be somebody else traveling to come see you. But because of Google, your your sphere of operation is worldwide now, and and if all of your ex, if all of your clients are local, then you're either new in the business or you're really not much of an expert. In, if you're selling your thinking for a living, so you want to have about a fourth or so of your clients local to you, and the rest should be somewhere else. Either you travel to them or they travel to you. Understate your qualifications, and that then let other people overstate them for you. Yeah, like maybe we could just omit the guru word. Uh, that would be an example of of overstating your qualifications. I think you you don't you know let people figure out how smart you are by the stuff you write, not because you tell them how smart you are. There's a real difference, and and it can be very it can really turn you off when you go to a website. You really want to work with an expert who is who is inaccessible from. Uh, just a marketplace standpoint, but their personality is very accessible and their insight is very drawing. Once you've tasted deep expertise, you'll feel shameful getting paid for anything else. Yeah, because you you know exactly what it feels like to, to deliver expertise. And you also, because you're self-aware as an expert, you have to be. There really aren't any real experts who aren't self-aware and successful ones anyway. So you're going to discover very quickly what it feels like. And while every year you're going to say no to more and more things, you're still staying saying yes to a couple of things you shouldn't. And over time, you're going to figure out to stop doing that. Now, this one's a personal favorite. When you get desperate, you turn stupid and stupid people are irrelevant. Yeah, right. That's like stepping, um, like, like saying, Hey, I, I need some work right now. Things are slow. Like that's what I mean by desperate. And when you look at 
when you've made the worst positioning mistakes for yourself as an expert, it's been because you've been desperate. I'd rather see people preserve the, the positioning expertise of their practice, even if it means that they have to go get a second job or drive for Uber temporarily, but never compromise that positioning of their expertise. Well, David, that was the first time I've done a lightning round on the show, and it was a lot of fun. So thanks so much for making it easy. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I was a little nervous. I didn't know what you were going to ask, but yeah, no, that was fun. I, I enjoyed that. No, that was great. So look, David, uh, you know, in, in the latter part of the book, I believe the final chapter, you talk about the long game, maintaining relevant expertise. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I got to say, this book has definitely taught me to think about the long game, the next 10, 20, 30 years of my career. And I think you've really written something here that will stand the test of time according to your own standards. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Well, that I wrote that actually, um, I wrote the outline of that when I was going through a really tough time wondering how relevant I was. So it was a very personal chapter. Uh, thank you. Appreciate that. David, where can people find you and find the book online? So the book probably best place would be expertise.is where they can read more about it, get a sample and so on. And of course they can buy it on Amazon. It's available in a hardback uh, Kindle edition and also audible. And then the website is davidcbaker.com as well. Excellent. And we will drop links to both of those in the show notes. David, it's been a real honor and a real pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. Hey, it's Ahmed here again. Before I let you go, there are two things I want you to do. The first is, if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play by visiting forecast.fm and clicking on the relevant link. While you're at it, please do leave us a rating or a review because it helps more people discover the show. The second thing is I want you to grab my free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional services firms. Inside the course, you will get a step-by-step framework to help you generate a flood of new business for your firm. The course is 100% free of charge and you can get immediate access at 5leadgen.com and you can spell out five or use the number either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. Thanks for listening.